Welcome to Critical Thinking for Everyone! Hey everyone, welcome to our wonderful radio show and podcast. And for those of you who are new, we can't wait till you try us on. Oh yeah, I mean this is, uh, we think, some pretty high quality critical thinking stuff. We hope that you think so. We're trying to help you think about your thinking in better ways. Yes, and we're doing it as humbly as we know how. Oh man, well, we might now, need to work we? on that. Do I'm not we? Sure. Are we doing it as humbly as we Maybe not. Well, I mean, it might be as humbly as we know how, but it might not be very humbly is the problem. Mm. So um, if you have some feedback like that, like you're wondering about, you know, our relative level of humility or any other things about our critical thinking approach, you should reach out to us at Critical Thinking for Everyone on Facebook. Yeah, um, we yeah. would love to see you on the on the metaverse. Is that what it is? It's, uh, I don't know, something mm. new name. And mm. and you can either address your comment to me, Patty Payette. Mm-hmm. Or to me, Brian Barnes. Yes, we are your two co-hosts. Indeed. And hosts of this hour of critical thinking goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we are hoping that we can provide for you some really good insight into some of the things that will help you throughout your week. Uh, we don't know everything that's going to be useful, so we might throw a bunch of stuff out here and see what sticks. Uh, we appreciate your patience with that. Yeah, and we love feedback. We love feedback, too. Yeah, and also, if you'd like to give feedback by doing something like um, going to um, SoundCloud to Forward Radio and checking out our back episodes, we've got quite a few of them out there. Yeah, we've yeah. got 160 some shows mm-hmm. and all different topics, you know, mm-hmm. funny, serious, yeah. in between. Yeah, critical thinking stuff. There's a lot to say about critical thinking. Yeah, Brian making some really cool uh, sound effects. There are a few sound effects. Yeah, um, that's one sure. of your specialties. Whew, boy, I need to do I need to do better stuff. Um, we uh, we also uh, would like to just remind you that you might be listening to this on Forward Radio, 106.5 FM WFMP, out of downtown Louisville, the Starks Building. That's Forward Radio. Hayburn Building, the my Hayburn, dear. The Hayburn, Hayburn building. building, my dear. It's that of the Hayburn Building. Um, and the Starks Building is a different Art Deco building in downtown Louisville. If you're if you're looking for the station, you should call ahead so <laughs> you can figure out which building it's in. Uh, there are so many named buildings. Yeah. Um, my apologies to those who may have been maligned. At any rate, uh, we are on 106.5 FM forwardradio.org. You can check out the live streaming, or you can just be in your car or at your home and. Roll over to 106.5 FM. Yeah. Yeah. So every week we choose a topic. We try to stay on topic, but, you know, the two of us, we're not, especially Brian, we are known. Well, no, I I got my rabbit holes. I got my rabbit holes I go down. So we, we like to stay on topic, but we like to let the conversation organically, the tangents, mm. they're all sanctioned tangents here. <laughs> they're all allowed. Sanctioned tangents. Yes. Okay. Right? Yeah, I think so. So today, because today's topic is kind of a heavy one. Oh, we have a heavy one? Yeah. Okay, kind what is it? Kind of a heavy one. What is it? It's about mortality 
and grief. <clears throat> Mortality. Oh, geez. What are we I doing that know, for? I know. What? Well, it's a, not a topic the, that we... Where's we've, the fun? Well, it's not a... To- well, actually, when you think about mortality, that should help you think about fun because it helps remind you you have limited days on this earth. Okay. 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 You don't, your expression don't looks... It's just when I'm reminded that I have limited days on this earth, I just fun is not the first, it's the not, first what's, attribute. What's the first thing you think of? Someone says, Brian, guess yeah. what? You are, every day you're dying. You're getting yeah. close to that. death. Yeah. So what? what's the first thing you think about? Ah, bummer. Because <laughs> you're having fun? I guess. In this life? Well, I mean, I you know, I think that it's, you know, you lose a lot of options after... After you shuffle off the mortal coil, as they say. You lose a lot of options. That's an interesting way to say it. Well, I think it's, you know, a lot of times we talk about value in ethics. We often talk about value for human beings as a function of personhood. And one of the aspects of that that we care about a great deal is something like, um, or some people care about, I should say, is something like whatever we're talking about has a future that will resemble or could resemble the kind of life that I've had. And so, I don't know, when you start thinking about my own future through that lens, it's sort of like some of the va- if 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 some of the value that we might give to humanity is based in the kind of value that each of us as individuals derive from living. When you start talking about those future possibilities for valuing just ending or just sort of arbitrarily going away, mm. I don't know. I mean, that sounds like a bummer. It's heavy. <laughs> heavy stuff. But you probably didn't think much about that when you were in your 20s, right? Did I, you think I about it? I thought a lot about it when I was you in my did? 20s because I was in the master's program in philosophy <laughs> and I was reading dudes who cared a lot about that. Yeah, well, um, then this is going to feel right at home because... I know, I saw who some of the dudes Yeah, are. some of the dudes. dudes. Okay, yeah. now before we talk about today's source material, first I want to talk about the author okay. because this guy is rocking some serious philosophy fun stuff. Okay, is okay. there philosophy fun stuff? Yeah, you, okay. you're going to be surprised. All right, I'm ready for it. Okay. His name is Johnny Thompson. Okay, he teaches philosophy in Oxford. Okay. Okay, so they say in Oxford. Do they mean Oxford, Mississippi at Mississippi, University of Mississippi? I don't think they do. Or do they mean Oxford I think in the when UK? You're in Oxford, you're at that's the it. UK. Like no, that's just stands on its own. Like yeah. in Oxford, yeah, that's I think like, they would say yeah. Oxford, Mississippi. Okay. Like kind of like <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I think that. Just that just occurs to me. Okay. They would, they would All that. right. It's not your philosophical bias coming in there. Like it's my geographical bias, I guess. I mean, I think when I think it's of Oxford, when I think standalone. of Oxford, I'm t- I, I tend. When you talk about when yeah. someone says that Oxford, in Oxford as part of their thing, yeah, I teaches usually think, in Oxford. You're not thinking in Oxford, Mississippi at University of Mississippi. It could be. Could be. I'm not saying they're not. Maybe because I was there a couple of years ago, Oxford, Mississippi, at the university there. Maybe that's why it's so. You did know. it? Did it remind? Did it make you think of Oxford in England? No, didn't oh, think of it one time. Not even once. <laughs> it made me think a lot about Southern Gothic stuff. Okay. 
and William Faulkner's from there. That's like their painting. claim to fame. Oh, do they have the do yeah. they have the, the Faulkner wall where he sketched out they, his <laughs> They have like stuff. a home. Yeah, in his in his Faulkner home he sketched home, yeah. out on his he sketched out yeah. a lot of the stuff on his wall. Yeah. But this Johnny Thompson, let's just say, teaches in Oxford in England. <laughs> okay. He, okay, he runs get this. He runs a popular Instagram account called Mini Philosophy. Okay. And I went to it. You did? Yeah. Was it um, tiny? Um, it was really clever what he's done. Okay. okay. Well, I think it's clever, but you're the philosopher, so you tell me if it's clever. So it's Instagram. Those of you following along at home, mini philosophy, at philosophy minis. That's that's it. Okay. So what he does is. Oh, dude, we have he, to log in. No, 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 Instagram. no. That's okay. I've got. I also took a screenshot because I anticipated this may happen. So He's I did a, blog, a screenshot. Maybe. Uh, mini philosophy. Okay. No, no, no. Look, here's his here's his Instagram thing. So this is what he does. He takes a person and a concept like this one, de Beauvoir. That's Simone de Beauvoir, and he yeah. writes. The subman, that's the concept. Mm -hmm. And then he's got like a little line drawing illustration that's sort of a representation of the concept. And then when you click on it, um, when you click on it, um, he has like a two paragraph description of that concept in philosophy, whatever, whatever it is, like the subman. I don't I don't know what that is in Simone de Beauvoir's work, but um, Anyway, so what he does is he writes like a two-paragraph, when you click on it over to the Instagram, like, little caption, he has like a two-paragraph description of that concept. And some of these, look at some of these concepts. Dawkins, religion is a poison. That's the concept. (laughs) Or the, maybe, or view, the point of view. This one. Have you ever heard of this one? Merleau-Ponty. That's the name of the... Merleau-Ponty. The whole picture. Mm. That's the, that's the... That's the concept. Yeah, isn't this interesting? Mm-hmm. So, so then people comment, and so it's a way to take bite these little bite-sized pieces of mini, mm-hmm. these little bite-sized pieces. Do a little drawing, and then write a an accessible. Like you and I are trying to make critical thinking accessible. Johnny is trying to make philosophy accessible to the average Instagrammer. What do you okay. think of that? Well, I think that's great. I think we need to Isn't make cool? philosophy more accessible. The problem is, of course, this is just this is just a way to what? Oh man, it's what? just a way to um, confuse some of these issues. Why? What do you say that? Because it's sim- too uh, simplified. Uh, you think it's too simplified, uh, or what? <laughs> says the prof- uh, says the professional philosopher. I mean, it's really hard to look at this and go, "Oh, I bet that that's really insightful." Why? Why did you say that? Just based on Just first blush. Just based on yeah, based on the first blush because Why I've seen you... so many first blushes. <laughs> I've just seen I've seen so much You have? I've seen so much fade from th- the philosophy landscape. I think you've read too many student papers. Oh my god. I Lord. think you've read too many well, student I mean, papers. Well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's where the hope is. Um I'm not sure. I see too many p- professional philosophers who who will present this stuff in order to make it acce- in the name yeah. of accessibility right. they will present it in such a way that it is it lacks any ability to point the user toward greater depth in the concept. Oh, I see. I see. It's, it's too treated, surface. Too it's surface. It's treated as a, a nugget 
This is the idea. It's in a capsule. You can take it. You can combine, combine it with other ideas. But it's like there's nothing there's nothing beyond it. It's like it's this little okay. half a paragraph description of something. And you say, well, we're going to combine it with this. That's what the Subman is. Yeah, and then we're going to combine it with this other completely unrelated, like Plato and Justified True Belief. Are you kidding me? Why? I mean, well, it's just that they're 2,000 years apart. And so I think that... I'm not saying that you can't connect JTB with Plato. I'm, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's a way to do that, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that, I mean, he could even be saying that they don't go together. Maybe that would be, a, a, a thing that he'd be doing. But it just seems to me that there, in philosophy, much of the beauty of philosophy for me, is in the depth and the complexity. And going out to those limits where you just don't know and you're trying to understand. And when you when you put the thing in like little boxes and make yeah, it make it edible. Make little it, little a little like, amuse bouche, like a little um, tasty. Uh, talk about bouche, man. I tell you, because we're done with it. Because someone someone genuinely believes someone's gonna click this box here and they're gonna genuinely believe that they have a grasp of it in <laughs> three minutes. Okay, and that's it. And there's even a thing called three minute philosophy that's really? very, very incredibly popular. Really? And I just oh, so many. Okay, and so often you can you can absolutely talk about that bite sized chunk in three minutes or less. I mean, you absolutely can. It's just that to it's just that it, it's these things are rarely presented as if there's more. Okay. You know. All right. All right. Let's pause here. Oh. You just said. You just said, see. Remember, I told you about the sound effects. It sounded like Brian really vomited right there, but he did not. Stop. Stop. Okay. So, you just said that it's presented in these. I'm paraphrasing these little bite-sized pieces, and it doesn't like the depth of philosophy doesn't take you into like the depths of ambiguity and like all the uncertainty. It's, it's not that it doesn't take you. It's that it doesn't, doesn't allow, allow you, you to go. It okay. doesn't show you any way forward. It's as if these ideas stop. Okay. But, 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 I'm one of these pers- people. What if I don't want to go there? What if I don't want to go into the whole like crazy layered complex? What if I just want to go, oh, really? Plato's idea of justified true belief? Okay, I got a sense of that. I got a sense of what you're laying down, but Johnny it's not Thompson. Plato's idea. That's the problem. Like you put these in proximity and people think that's what it is. Okay, it's well, maybe I'm misrepresenting. I'm misrepresenting. No, 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 you're not. You're, you're, this, is the pro- this is exactly the problem is that when people who don't. God, this sound, I, know, I know how this sounds. This, this is the worst. This Uh-oh. Is the worst. But I know, but, but, but it also is the case that people who don't have a background in any area, not just philosophy, we walk in and we, we take what we see as truth. And it's almost never the case, right? It's the point of, it's the point of depth, right? The answers are not on the surface. Like the answers are right. never on the surface. Got it. I've and got so it. These are only surface. And again, if they're only surface and you want to grab onto it as only surface, I think that's lovely. It's just that what happens is then that you walk away from this discipline where I know like that's just the first step. Right. Not Patty, of course, because she has too much intellectual humility, but someone else (laughs) might easily walk away from this and say, I learned this new I idea, this. and it. this is what this means, and then use it in 
See, the problem is with philosophy, and I, I wish I could say it was You're like sounding this. sounding a little arrogant. It's terrible. It's terrible. The problem with philosophy, and I wish I, I wish I could say I knew enough about other disciplines to say that this was true everywhere. It might, it might really just be oh my, a failing. You better watch. Well, hold on. It might just be a failing of, of philosophical discourse. Uh-huh. That in order to really understand what is said at the beginning of the discourse, you kind of have to read a lot and you have to finish it. If all you do is kind of go with what you started with, you almost always get the wrong impression. Mm. And so that's just my concern is that without the ability to go deeper into whatever it is that, and, you know, not uh, not sort of facilitating right. that at all, then the the complexities which are absolutely there will simply be lost and you will a person could very easily end up with a misunderstanding of the concept because the concept is not shallow. The concept is deep. And if you don't have the layers, then you don't have the, the deep concept. Okay. Okay. So as far as I know, in his Instagram descriptions of these concepts, he does I, – I, I have to go in and give, give it another look. But – I don't know that he directs people to like for more information or. Well, that's you just know. my concern about these things. I don't generally. generally. That was okay. why my face. Well, so then you, <laughs> so then I'm wondering how you're going to feel about his book called Mini Philosophy. I have had so many of these books where it's like a one page yeah. or a two. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay, but hey, this is what the review says: engaging, smart, and wise. What's, what's Mini the, philosophy is a diverse taste menu of ideas on life. USA Today. Uh, this is from Goodreads. I wonder if it's the publisher. <laughs> the depth of Goodreads. It, nutritious bite-sized portions of philosophy that when the that whet the appetite for more. I hope so. Oh, that was a review from David Mitchell. Okay. He wrote Cloud Atlas. I, I know his. I know his author. Like I know his. Yeah, he's a fiction thing. writer. Yeah, he's a fiction writer. Mm -hmm. Why do people enjoy watching scary movies? Should we bet on the existence of God? Why is pleasure better than pain? And when is a duck not a duck? Mini philosophy is a fascinating journey into what some of the greatest minds of the last 2,500 years have to say about the big questions in life and why they're so relevant today. So what the, the problem that I have yes. really is yes. that What's I'm your very real conflicted about this. Yeah. I've, I'm very conflicted because I absolutely believe that you need the, the complexity to understand the concepts. I mean – just any oh philosophical I swear to you any philosophical concept if you start say if you want to tell it to me in one sentence it's wrong they're wrong oh, they're not come one on. sentence ah oh, dude see this is the this is why we don't study philosophy see it's this it's this kind of derision now on the other hand on the other hand since we don't yes. since we don't study philosophy and yes. it's widely derided <laughs> yes this is absolutely a fun way to get people thinking about philosophy. Well, super fun. It's yeah. just it's just that what you actually have them thinking about is is maybe slightly different than what the actual things are, but but there's a lot of value in that, right? Because who knows where the next epiphany is going to come? Who knows who percolates on these things and suddenly they get something really profound yes, out of it? Exactly. Well, what, what they could say the same thing about the show. But that's the way I feel. Right? I'm they conflicted. could say this about the show, our show. They, they can say, say that about anything having to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you can see Brian is an interesting mix of humility and arrogance. Complex, derided, <laughs> perhaps accessible in a bite size, but not very. 
you know, just probably not very um, representative of the actual things that it represents mm. if you just get a small amount of it. But mm. you probably, you know, if, if that's not attractive, then you won't want more. This sounds like everything now. This sounds yeah. like capitalism. Am I capitalism? <laughs> wow. How wow. far we I have were... morphed. Wow. You true colors about philosophy are really coming out in a way that I haven't seen. They're green. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Wow. No, I mean, I mean, I really do believe that, that it's one of the reasons we need critical thinking because, of course, philosophy is not the only complex thing. Right. Exactly. Right? So, I mean, we need to be able to have these tools to go beyond the surface of things, to question our assumptions about things, to be able to ask ourselves, what do I really think? Like, can I articulate the information that's in my thinking about this thing? Right. You know, some of which, you know, we've been playing with here. But I just I, I'm, I'm always skeptical when something that I know is very complex is presented as very simplistic. It's like, what's going on with Romeo and Juliet? I mean, what, is, what does everybody say? Great love story. Actually, it's not really. Great. Really, it's yeah, terrible. It's, it's a terrible, terrible love story. story. It's That's a terrible true. love story, and there's so much complexity in there. But if you don't really know it, it's just it's the right. paradigm for this great love. Okay, okay. So, as somebody who has my own disciplinary, you know, depths of thinking, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to imagine, would I, if somebody said to me, if somebody said. I'm trying to think how I would handle that. If somebody summed up a disciplinary concept or a great piece of literature, like you just said, in a way that was like really simplistic, because I've actually been in this situation where other popular press or other scholars or people will say mm-hmm. something which I'm like, actually, the reality is not at all. <laughs> right. That's not at all what it is. Right. But you know what? I keep it to myself. Oh, I keep, keep it, it to yourself. myself because I go... I just, I'm trying to imagine a scenario where they really want to hear all that. Well, me going, well, actually, I know everyone thinks that that's true about this author, but when you really look at the text in depth and you really look at, you know, what other scholars have said, and you really look at the cultural context, it's actually the opposite of that. People don't want to hear that. I don't think people do. But, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't part of the reason that we'd be talking about this material material at all be that we were trying to get to the truth of the matter well now you make a good point in for me in those conversations it's just purely a social context but if somebody said hey um i'd like you to write about this novel or this book or this concept from your your field your teaching and learning field uh yes it would i would feel that i would want to accurately represent it in its complexities and messiness however Remember what we say in critical thinking, at least I say this all the time at work, purpose drives the process. Okay. If the purpose of this conversation sure. is to give you a little paradigm shift and to think about it in a new way, that uh, is when I'm going to give you versus uh, is the purpose really to like spend, you know, an hour really dissecting and talking about this. Oh, but I mean, some things like. Like maybe they just shouldn't even be raised then if we don't have the time for the dissection because it's sort of like when you have a really significant conversation to have with someone right. you love and they just want to talk about it for just like a minute. Yeah. And you're like, no, 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 there's way more. Right. But, but they're very happy with it just being on the surface. Yeah, you're right. That's like, frustrating. Oh, man. That's a little frustrating. But I mean when you love philosophy. Yeah, when you love philosophy. But not most people don't love it. Most people most love it. They just don't, don't know what they call it. 
Really? You everybody think has a philosophy of, everybody's an epistemologist, everybody deals with ethics, mm. everybody has metaphysical beliefs. But a lot of times people don't want to examine it and look at it. It's because you're weak and fearful people. <laughs> Stop it. Wow, Brian. Weak and fearful. Wow, this is making people want to take your classes. I was just going <laughs> off of the people that you brought in here. They say yes. they say that we're weak and fearful. Um, actually, this article. All right, so we spent. Wow, we started talking about Johnny Thompson, the author, and we really went down a Johnny Thompson philosophical rabbit hole. I'm sure that that makes Johnny Thompson very happy. I, if you're out there, Johnny Thompson, I really hope he did not let, just listen to the last. 23 minutes from Oxford. <laughs> I hope... I hope he did. This podcast is successful come hang, in come Oxford. Come down here and hang with us, Johnny I, I really hope he isn't listening. We are absolutely at the bottom of the philosophical <laughs> construct, and we would love to have you come and elucidate us. Okay, so this article that he wrote is called Three Responses to Grief in the Philosophy of Kierkegaard, Heidegger, and Camus. And I got to tell you something. When I read this, I was like, there's got to be more to it. And there's I definitely thought, more yes. To it. And reading this article, and I was like, whoa, Brian is going to know. Brian is going to know more. more. Because I'm reading this going, mm, it's got to be a little more. Okay. So he starts off by saying that um, transformational for- formative experiences happen to all of us. Like okay. things in our life that like profoundly shape and change who we are they happen to us right that's part of the human experience sure right okay so um one of the things he said that falls into that category is transformative life-changing experiences is when we lose someone we love okay okay yep so he said when you when you experience grief when you lose someone you love it's very different emotionally than just intellectually knowing like, oh, yes, I know my loved one, my parents or my grandparents or, you know, who are. I know those people are going to die at some point and they're probably going to die. Well, I will experience that. Right. I will sure. be alive. That's likely to happen. Yeah. Intellectually, you know that. Mm-hmm. But he says what happens, though, is when you emotionally the emotionally subjective experience of grief is a profound life-changing it can be a profound sure. life-changing experience sure. and he talks about many philosophers have explored the idea of grief and death and for many it's the most important thing about being alive that's what he says yeah, yeah. i didn't know yeah. that sure that is, that's that is the that's a true statement yeah yeah for some yeah sure yeah so then he brings up this term you've probably heard it latin term Memento mori. Are you familiar? That means remember that you have to die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that you're going to have to die, Brian? Yeah, absolutely. Heidegger Heidegger taught me that when I was in my 20s. Really? Yep. You read some, how did it change your, your, how did it change you in what way? Um, A lot of ways. I mean, Heidegger has been deeply profound for me. I mean. Really? Yeah. And a lot of things he talks about society and he talks about our relationship with nature and technology and he talks about um certainly talks about our relationship with others um he talks about the ways that society has different odd uh, different um goals than individuals mm-hmm. and um it's really aw- it's really easy for us to get caught up in the collective consciousness yes the, um without understanding what's happening and being directed to um, ends that are not our own, 
um, and that can ultimately lead us into uh, feeling like our life has not been very useful and cause us to live in a very... Um, you like know, a prescriptive surface kind of life as opposed yes. to one that's deeply meaningful. Well, right? I mean, it can, you can think that it's deeply meaningful. It's just for Heidegger, if the deep meaning is constantly flaring up and going away, so this is deeply meaningful for a while, but then it's not, mm-hmm. then for him that means that I've not really identified my authentic self and I've not been able to cultivate that. And instead, I'm probably pulling values from a lot of other sources that aren't really um, the values that are the most meaningful for me. And for Heidegger, for Heidegger anyway, I don't know if it's true, uh, but certainly one of the way, the way that you um, uh, learn about this, yes. uh, the way that you um, appreciate your own mortality for what it is, is that you contemplate your position in the world among others, which he calls Dasein. Um, It's the idea that my being exists as a function of all of the others, and I can't separate myself from the world that I'm in. It's not possible. Um, I'm always entangled in that way. And, And to recognize that my relationships with others are, um, you know, the, the one of the things that's been very shaping to me, um, and then also to recognize that at some point I'm going to die, and so I will have no future possibilities at that point. And so Heidegger thinks that these realizations together will lead me toward a posture of care for others. Once I realize mm. that the true value is really... Um, embedding myself in a meaningful and authentic way in this world of others as an other for everyone else and supporting the larger net of uh, sort of, um, you know, existence. So in other words, all you need is love? All you need is, (laughs) no, 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 not all you need is love. All you need is, um, is perspective toward death to recognize that I am always a being facing toward death. That that is always Ooh. that is always my posture. That's tough. That's a tough place to just be all the time. Well, it it, it is in the to beginning. Stay. It is in the beginning. I've found a few times when I've sort of confronted my my own mortality in its most kind of um, raw and also with a lot of time, you know, sort of in a philosophical space to really wrestle with it. It can be very emotional and very painful, but there's no question in my mind that we have to recognize our own finitude. Like we have to come to deal with the fact that I will have an end and that everyone before me has had an end. And so there isn't anything about that that is odd or or strange or right it comes with the it comes it's part it's the price on the journey right it's just part of it yeah part of it yeah and so it's not for heidegger as much as it might be individually painful and sad and and emotional and all those things and no one really wants to have an end in this regard he does also think that we can uh take perspective which is to see our our life in it's as the value it truly is, which is to say, I'm not better than others. I'm not going to live forever. I'm not oh, right. the master of everything. You know, the right. great I don't have control over everything. Yeah, Most I mean, things I don't. Right, right. And, and so Heidegger thinks when we, when we finally will accept the idea that, that our death is inevitable and that I'm, and that I'm expecting that, right? right. I mean, it's, it's headed toward me. Then, then I can live more fully 
in the moment with others because I recognize the reality Got of what I'm it. doing here and the Temp- the, 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 short, the yeah, temporary the nature of it. That's okay, right, right. so he in this article he's and called a German a German phenomenologist. He is oh man, yeah for sure. I mean I mean he follows Husserl in the phenomenological method. Um, that means nothing to people, most people listening. But that's the only thing that meant. So the, <laughs> the phenomenology, oh my God. phenomenology is this um, is this philosophical philosophical system developed at the be the beginning of the 20th century by a guy named Edmund Husserl, who was a mathematician, and what he really wanted to do was to track all of experience. Like he wanted to be able to. You know, to talk without biases about experience. God, that sounds that sounds like a such a worthy goal. Yeah, well, I mean, I found it fascinating. I thought Husserl was a real genius when I was. I thought you were going to say he was a mathematician. What he really wanted to do was be a philosopher, but his parents wouldn't let him major (laughs) in philosophy, so he had to major in math. Well, he ended up working it out somehow, and uh, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's just that I think for Husserl, it took a mathematical insights to really try to figure out what he wanted to discover about experience. And he developed this method called phenomenology where everyone can look into their own experience and very carefully map it. It's, it's, it's a different method from what, you know, the critical thinking stuff does with self-reflection mm-hmm. and looking at our own thinking. But it's, it's a similar type of thing. Like, oh. like they believe they're talking about different processes and give it different names. Okay, like a, there's a structure there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but it's but it's very reminiscent. So when I found that with Richard Paul, I was like, whoa, this is just like phenomenology. Really? It's, yeah, it's not, but it has a lot in common. And so Heidegger picked that up from Husserl, and that became the foundation for his work. Frankly, he's what we refer to. Oh man, some of the professionals are out there oh going, who God. is this clown? Um, this is what we refer to as a proto existential. Because oh there was gosh. there was no existentialism until we got to that de Beauvoir character and oh, the Camus and right, all those people. Right, the the modernist kind of like thinkers starting to really yeah, and he, break things he apart. He was very influential on them. Got it. Okay, so he yeah. was the early part of the 20th century. Well, okay. he actually, I mean, early middle. I mean, Husserl early was middle. before him. That was early. Heidegger's really writing around World War II, which is relatively significant since he was a Nazi. Whoa. Yeah, wow. It's, yeah, it's a huge bummer. Wow. Yeah, a lot that's of people would crazy. like to throw Heidegger right out. Really? Because of that? Because of his I understand Hitler, that. But, now, let yeah. me, I was going to ask you a question. Well, I think you've answered my questions about Heidegger. Mm. But according to, to Johnny, he says Heidegger argued that the presence of death in our lives gives fresh meaning to our being free to choose. Absolutely. When we appreciate that our decisions are all that we have and our entire life is punctuated by a final coup de gras, coup, coup de gras, it invigorates <laughs> our action and gives us a daring. Hmm. As he wrote, being present is grounded in the turning towards death. That's what yeah, you the, were. The turning, the turning toward death. Right. It's a theme yeah. echoed in the medieval idea of memento mori that is keeping death close to make the current moment sweeter. Hmm. When we lose a loved one, we recognize that we are indeed left behind, and so this in turn gives new gravity to our choices. Okay, I got another thing to mention. All right. Middle age. Middle age. One of the things about being where you and I are, (laughs) and I'm older than you. All right. Okay, I am definitely in the mires of middle age. One of the things that has happened that has really brought this whole memento mori thing home is – 
your body starts to deteriorate. Your body sure. is deteriorating. I mean, your body's been deteriorating all along, right? Yep. Or maybe maybe there's, you know, like in your 20s, you like you peak and then it's all downhill after that. But what's happened, it becomes more noticeable day to day. So my joint, first your eyesight, right, starts to go and then your joints start to go and then your hair turns gray and then all of these things start happening and you're like, oh my God, this thing I'm encased in is has a shelf life sure. and i am <laughs> i am seeing and feeling it every day yeah. so for me uh, being in middle age and having to deal with all your body you know when i was in my 20s and 30s my body was sort of like doing whatever i wanted it to do and not really complaining mm. and then late 40s and into my 50s mm-hmm. it's been like oh my god this thing is like as i like to tell my friends you know the warranties starting to ex- expired and mm. it's starting to i'm like and that's a that's a wake-up call right there sure can be i can imagine it is a way <laughs> i don't have to imagine i mean I've got yeah my own you're experiencing you're experiencing you're not even 50 you're All starting to experience that stuff yeah i've been experiencing it for a while it's so so that stuff really was i was like wow okay this is really hitting mortality is really hitting home for me well and i think the important thing really for heidegger one of the big pieces i don't know if johnny tells us this or not but for heidegger you have to reject organized religion oh yeah he does he does talk about that he said that in ancient greece and rome a lot of the philosophers came stewed in a cauldron of religious assumptions sure well not just there i mean i mean just throughout history Right, right. But right. he's saying, you know, some of these philosophers sort of breaking away from this idea that well, if I want to talk about mortality, it's always going to be tied to ideas of the soul and religion and all these ideas. Well, it's interesting, right? Even Socrates, you know, who didn't give us really a metaphysical that we know about, didn't really give us a metaphysical um understanding of the soul so much, he conjectured a lot about the idea that maybe the soul would survive the death of the body. And I think that that influenced a lot of folks. Of course, we also have Hindu ideas that are just thousands of years older than that. About reincarnation. Yeah, the same thing. I mean, some part of you survives and you get all that kind of stuff. But the problem is for, for Heidegger, whether you're looking at, you know, the world of the forms or a Christian heaven and hell or um, you know, the, some kind of Hindu or Buddhist reincarnation. The bottom line is that um, that that is an antidote to the notion of finitude. Like any of that is an escape. Oh, from having not to think about the fact that I'm going to die. And, right. Well, because right. because I'm not. Right, cause because you, really, cause there's I'm something gonna go next. On. Yeah, there's I'm something gonna come next. back as somebody else. I'm gonna go on into yeah. another body. But, I'm gonna. But you another... could. You don't actually know. But for Heidegger, if you if you take that point of view, right, then, then you're not dealing with your own. Then your oh, own yeah. narcissism reigns oh, supreme. Your own right. ethical egoism is gonna dominate just... because because that's I mean that's it is I am gonna live forever. Like, I literally am. Like, I'm going to go on. I'm going to be looking down on all you people. You're going to be making sacrifices to me. Right? I'm going to be right. intervening with things. I'm going to be conscious. I'm going to have my own consciousness. Wow. Well, of course, this is what heaven, right? We're right. all hanging out. We're as all hanging our, out. As our best selves or whatever it is. So, I mean. Having and, a good time. Well, I mean, it's hard to do that if I'm not in possession of, at least it's hard to understand how I would do that if I'm not in right. possession of a self. And so, it really, it's interesting. And Heidegger had some interesting connections with Eastern philosophy because there are, 
you know, it, at some point, like especially for the Hindus and the Buddhists, there's an escape from that, right? And it's 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 a recognition of the unimportance of the self. Like mm. that's the escape. Right. If you can actually achieve that, you're supposed to n- then not really. There's not a lot of reincarnation left for you anymore. Like you're you just. The obliteration of the self is like the goal. Right. Right. And then I can just become part of the uh, great part whatever. Of the, the great universe. Out in the great wide open. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, he also talks about Soren Kierkegaard. Yes, Kierkegaard. And what what time period was Kierkegaard relative to Heidegger? So Kierkegaard um, is definitely in the 19th century, middle yeah. 19th century. Okay. Um, maybe, I think, I, I'm not sure if he was early or late, but... He um, he is also a person who we would call a proto existentialist. I mean, it's problematic because Heidegger, direct like like Jean Paul Sartre, the founder of existentialism, studied with Heidegger briefly. Like there is well some I mean, overlap there. Yeah, I mean he read his stuff. They had some letters. I think he might have, maybe there was a lecture that they that he attended. I'm not sure, but anyway, Heidegger would directly influence the existentialists and it led a lot of people because Sartre and these Camus and de Beauvoir, yeah. they, they would pull directly from Heidegger for theory. And so it led a lot of people to call Heidegger an, an existentialist, which he rejected. But we still want to call him a proto-existentialist. That's on the end of proto-existentialism. On the early side of proto-existentialism, we have Kierkegaard. Okay. The first so... person who was really writing about these existentialist concerns. But he's He's definitely not an existentialist because of the way he concludes. All right. Well, according to Johnny, he says, Kierkegaard, we get, we after experiencing grief, he calls, we have something called despair. Yep. Okay. And the long nighttime of despair, we can begin the journey to realize our truest selves. Mm-hmm. When we meaningfully encounter firsthand the things in life that are not eternal and nothing is forever, mm. we appreciate how we passionately long for the things to be eternal. The source of our despair is that we want that forever. Okay. And for Kierkegaard, the answer to that is? is he's Here, he says it's to surrender. To surrender to what? To surrender to there is an internal by which we lose ourselves in. There is faith and grief is dark. So religion? It's religion. He wants he wants you to just give in to God it's and called, faith. Kierkegaard literally calls it the leap of faith. It's not logical. I don't really think of I just my stereotype of, of him as a philosopher is he wouldn't be very religious. Kierkegaard was obviously clinically depressed. I mean, just let's just put there. Really? I, mean, I mean, he was so depressed really? all the time when you read his writings and he's so upset. What a downer. He's upset by so many things. I mean, he's caught up in the trivialities of culture. He he writes about how, you know, I mean, he's one of the he's one of the people who writes about how painful it is to be at the party and obviously be the the life of the party, the person making everybody laugh that everybody wants to gravitate toward, and then going home alone. And you know he is constantly lonely. He's constantly in despair. Wow! And, wow! And he talks about he he blames it on his focus on himself, and then he thinks, well, people can transcend this by focusing on community and society, and that's quite good. Right. But ultimately, that comes up empty as well for reasons, frankly, right. that Plato and Aristotle talked about. And then. So what do you do? What's left? Right. And it's to it's to have a leap 
into the religious where I give myself over totally to something bigger than me that I uh, put my... Um, that's put where my, he ended up, that's huh? Where he, that's, that's where, where he ended up. That's where ends up. Yeah. Wow. Which is why he can't be an existentialist because existentialist, even though for Sartre, for example, there may be a God-shaped hole, there is definitely nothing that will ever fill it. Wow. Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard thought you really could fill it. Yeah, he thought you could of the masses, masses, huh? Okay, well then that leads us to our last one. You're going to like Camus, well, right? Camus, Camus is... Camus is powerful and painful. Yeah, mm. so he says this is what this is what Camus says. He is okay, he's a nihilist, right? That mm-hmm. was I mean, he's that a, we talked we did a show on nihilist a couple weeks he's ago. He's for the founding of existentialism. I don't know that I would call him, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, well, he fine. says he said Johnny says his works were a deliberate and strenuous effort to resolve the listless listless Abyss of nihilism. List, yeah, list, yeah. abyss of nihilism. Yeah. His solution That's of fair. absurdity <clears throat> is not easy medicine. So, no, so for those not. of you who did not hear, did not hear our show on nihilism. Basically, what he's saying is the list, listless abyss of nihilism. How I would interpret that is to say, uh, nihilism means there is no meaning, and so the sort of like downer of going, oh wow, if there's no meaning, what am I doing? Right. Why do I exist? Why do I keep getting up in the morning? He's saying for Camus, grief is a state of being overcome by the pointlessness of it all. Mm -hmm. Why love if love ends in such pain? Mm -hmm. Why build great projects when all will be dust? So he's saying with grief and with Camus comes an awareness of the bitter finality of everything. And it comes with an angry, screaming frustration. Why are we all here? So... Just enjoy the meaningless ride. <laughs> I think it's a little bit more than that. For That's Camus. what he. <laughs> yeah, there might, again, this is where you go. Well, there's right. a paragraph on Camus. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the Camus version of existentialism is an attempt to overcome nihilism, but I wouldn't say that he's a nihilist, right? I mean, I, I would say that. I mean, because Camus does have a solution. What's his solution? Well, you have to frame the problem first. So the problem for Camus is that we can't. Um, we search for meaning. We have these tools, like to intellectual meaning. tools. Well, yeah. well, to figure things out. Right. And so we search for meaning, and we we find contradictory answers. In some cases, right. So it's like it's like there's a different set of laws for the people like me, and then for these other people, right. That's not obvious. You have to dig in to kind of right. learn that, right. Um, there are. Um, you know, different kinds of options available for different kinds of living, right, for different kinds of people. But it's none of that's obvious until you look into it. So for Camus, there's a problem that when we go and look for absolute meaning, we find that it really absolute meaning isn't quite available to us, right? But what that ends up doing then is it also shows, uh, we also find through the same mechanisms that some things are, you can't find the truth. Like you search like important questions, Right. Like the universe, we are created, whatever that means for Camus, to figure stuff out. Like we are analytical beings. It, right. It's our natural. And our natural state, state is to make meaning. Right. And our natural state is completely befuddled constantly. That's existence. We try to find me. What's going on? Was there a creator or not? What? Okay. When no. I mean, I mean, what's the truth of the universe? Like, like what's going on with my, you know, my, like we're never going to know. We're never going to know. And so that for Camus is a terrible mismatch, which is the absurd. 
I see. We're trying to make meaning when meaning cannot ever be found. It can't be found. And it's and it's absurd for us to be in that position. And it's so frustrating. And so what a lot of people do is just ignore it right. at their own peril. But it pops up from time to time throughout their lives and it makes right. them really frustrated, right? And they they go and they attach themselves to various bodies of meaning that really to, don't satisfy. Right, like we talked about this before, right? So they, many times, they buy yeah. things to fill the void. The religion, right? politics, right. service, cars, all kinds uh, of stuff. Vacations, yeah. all whatever. kinds of stuff. Yeah. And so for Camus, all of that ultimately is simply a substitute for us being unable to come to the truth of reality. Wow. And so we could stay in a state of absurdity, and many of us do, but for Camus, there's also this this thing, I guess, that I can become, which is someone who sees through all this and who creates my own meaning, someone who answers that central philosophical question that we talked about before. Do you remember Camus, the most important question that you have to answer in philosophy? Why Why am I here? Why will I not kill myself today? <laughs> and, and Camus thinks everybody can answer that question. But the thing is, do you answer that question in a way that is you creating your own meaning or do you answer that question in a way where you're you're just buying into something else. Stuff. Yeah, and he thinks eventually we we come into crises of personal meaning because we're just following the herd and we're not doing any of these things authentically. Right. Right. And this is where it ties right. back into some of Heidegger's work. So for Camus, what I need to do is to embrace the fact of the absurdity, rise above it, and make meaning anyway, which is what he thinks Sisyphus does moving that rock. His essay about Sisyphus is very disappointing to a number of people, including my partner Angie, because Sisyphus, because Camus says Sisyphus is rolling that rock for eternity, right? Right. But when the rock slips at the top of the hill and rolls right back down the hill, the that moment or those moments when Sisyphus turns to go back right. down the hill, he may look and see the beautiful sunset and he may establish his own meaning. Exactly. For this meaningless toil. It's still meaningless toil. Well, I know, but he's created meaning for him. Which is still in the face of absurdity because the meaninglessness right. doesn't go away. I, I see what you're saying. So, I still s- abs- so that's I the absurd saying. hero. Got it. That's, I like that. That's what Camus I like we that because a lot of people, right, on their commute to work, that that would be like, oh, I'm like Sisyphus, and this is just, <laughs> absolutely. I'm right. I'm do. Yeah. Why am I doing this? Oh, I'm doing this for fill in the blank. Each right. person would have right. their own blank to fill in there, yeah. and um, wow. Well, you know, I kind of like Camus, even though he's sort of like the downer. He's very in your face. You know, his I, his, his novels are very gritty uh, and I hard. Rem- well, I remember reading in The Stranger and also, what's his other famous? The Plague uh, is one. Uh, the Plague. There's another one. Or am I, No, I'm thinking of Sartre, No Exit. Oh, okay, No Exit. I'm thinking yeah. about No Exit, which yeah. is, again, about the absurdity, you know, hell is other people. Hell is other people. <laughs> and, you know, this idea. <laughs> and what I really like, uh, they don't know, there's just something in these modern times, which it's very... Um, it's very comforting to read this stuff because modern times feels so, I don't know, it just feels so surface. Everything oh, sometimes man, feels everything so is. surface. And yeah. Okay, so which leads me back to another question about social media. So on your deathbed, are you going to say to me? To you? <laughs> okay. Are you going to be there? 
I might be there. Okay, if you're there, I might it, be what there. What is it? Will I say? You'll say, "Oh man, I wish I'd spent more time on social media." <laughs> I, won't, I don't think I'll be saying that. Can to you anybody. say, "Can you log in for me, please? <laughs> give me your password." No, you won't be saying that. You won't be. Sa- you won't some, be saying some that. Some people will. And if probably. you are saying that, I'm gonna Get redirect on the you and let them know what's happening. <laughs> I'm gonna redirect you. I want to be Facebook Live for my last minutes. <laughs> No, nobody's going to do that. It's I like, bet a lot of people will do that. See, it's maybe, but it reminds me of a thing I read like a year or two ago that said, you know, you never say to someone, hey, let's go to the beach so I can check my email. But you go to the beach and you check your freaking email. I'm sure. So, yeah, but that. I don't go to the beach, but yeah, sure. Well, you do go to the beach. You've <laughs> I, been, been to, to the, the beach. beach. You've been, you I haven't think, gone lately. I think it was pre-email. It was pre <laughs> It was pre-COVID, you're thinking. It was pre-COVID. I, went, I was at the beach in Hawaii immediately before I COVID. know. I remember so that. I did not check any email while I was I there. wonder if there's a, there might be a relationship there between you going to Hawaii and COVID. Yeah, I brought the COVID back. <laughs> it, it, it chased me back. It's still pursuing me. I had another COVID test this morning. It's still pursuing me. Did you have another COVID test this morning? I did. Oh, because of your, your thing. My impending Later this thing. week. Yeah, yeah, Later yeah. this week. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, listen. I'm not sure where I was going with this other than you, you me- You thought there's meaning in there somewhere. Well, you feel social good about media, it. I, I, it, okay. I have such a, you, we've talked about this before and mm. I'm sorry listeners and Brian, you might be tired of me saying this, but mm. I have such an ambivalence about social media. Like I wanna lose it from my life, but, but <clears throat> yet it keeps me connected to people in a way that I enjoy. So it's like, I don't know how to. I don't know how to make meaning of that. Yeah, it's tough. Now, now there is one possible solution. Yeah. And I heard about a student who took Edna Ross's class, who is our colleague of ours, as you know, has been Absolutely. on the show. Yep. And she had students get this: they used the critical thinking framework mm-hmm. to change a habit and report on it. They did research on their own ability oh, to change a habit. Okay. So this one student said he wanted to change his habit on on going to Facebook so much. So what he realized, though, is that he is part of a important part of like a group or a club or a school, some school thing where. The, the group conversation was on Facebook. And he oh, said, yeah. well, I can't, because the primary mode of information from this group it, that I'm part of is Facebook, I can't really, like, get rid of it. So yeah. this is what he did. Okay. I am going to get on it for 10 minutes a day. And he actually timed himself. And he weaned himself off. And he only got on for a certain amount of time mm-hmm. that uh, achieved the goal mm-hmm. of staying connected, but B, like, achieved the other goal of not, letting it be in his life quite so much. Oh, good. So maybe I should try that. Do you think I would be successful? Yeah, I think you would. I think that um, I think that it's not necessary probably that you have the social media outlet. I bet you'd be able to keep up with people and stuff anyway. I don't think I would, though. You don't think you'd be no. able to just use email and text and stuff to well, keep up with people Well, but you know? it's also people sharing information about what's going on in their life. You get 10 that... minutes of data. Okay. Would you wean yourself down or off? I would wean myself down to 10 minutes a day. It's worth what do you trying. think? Yeah. Should we try it? I'm going to try, try it. it. Why don't you want to try it? What's it's another what's... thing I got to do. Okay. <laughs> okay. How about if I do it for, I'll do it. I'll try it. Okay. How about let me try it? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'll report back. I don't think that if I tried it, it would be impossible for me to do it. Right. But I do think that, um, 
I do. I just think that it would what? be a lift. I think it would be another thing for Why? me to track. What? No, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait. We're talking less activity, not more. You literally just pick your time of day, set your alarm. Yeah. Alarm goes off. You get on Facebook. Yeah. You set in a timer for ten minutes. You get off. Yeah, I'm not. I, listen, I'm going to try it first. It sounds I'm willing. When you say it like what that. do you? Okay, so what do you predict? Okay, I'm going to report back. I'm going to try this. Okay. Now, what do you predict will happen? And let's let's roll the tape and see if this. What do you predict when I try that? What do you think will happen? I think you're going to find that it's great. I think you're going to wonder why you weren't doing it like this before. I think so too. <laughs> I think so too. Ten minutes is just right. You'll say. I think so too. Or Twelve and, minutes. It's, and, it's eleven and a half minutes for me. And I will use that time that I am not on Facebook to contemplate Memento Mori. If you like. I might like. If you like. I mean, I think that, I think, I mean, I found, um, you know, working with Heidegger on this topic to be quite useful when I was young. Yeah, I thought it was, it was very, um, very difficult for me to think about um, you know, my own mortality and my own finitude because I was so into my life, you know, because I was so focused on my own day-to-day existence. Um, well, you were young. Yeah, I was when young. You I were was young. young. But I mean, it also, I think that, you know, when I finally was able to understand what was going on there, it was really exciting in a certain way. Like, it was exciting to think about breaking away from more traditional ways of, of thinking about these things. I found it to be really good. And you became a philosophy major. I was already a graduate student philosophy major. Oh, you really? You were oh, yeah. already... And has your family ever said, you know, we've really benefited from your philosophical insights in life? Have they, oh, well. have they, you know, have they like really <laughs> soaked it up? I'm sure that some people in my family <laughs> would say that they have benefited from my philosophical insights. I would not say that they would say that about all of them. But I have I have heard the occasional positive comment. Really? Yes, indeed. Okay. Well, I just say that because some of them were not. Uh, um, some of them did not want you to become a professional philosopher, mm-hmm. and yet here you are with your own radio show. Woohoo! Here you are, passing on your philosophical insights to the to the future generations for years you've been teaching. So look at you go. Ooh, man, what a what a life wasted. They'd say. What? On philosophy? Ugh, I could have been making cars this whole time. Jeez. Well, it's not too late. You can still change. Well, and if you, you think if you think that we need some changes, either Patty or me, or maybe both of us, you can definitely reach out to us at Critical Thinking for Everyone on Facebook. We would love to hear from you about these things. We would love to hear from you. We would love to hear how you make meaning. When you get up and think about in the morning, I got to roll this rock up this hill again, <laughs> and I'm doing it because fill in the blank. What's yeah. your blank? Yeah, maybe uh, maybe you think about it that way. It definitely, when you talk about rolling the rock, though, that stuff's for everyone. Even you. Even you.